so if we have up here, um, yes, this is this is a hat. Anybody notice anything about this hat? Anything spectacular sticking out to you? Anyone? You guys have a bunch of confused looks on your faces that are about to become not confused looks in a minute. This is a baseball hat. Uh, it's actually blue. You can't really see it very well, um, but it looks it looks black from here. But it's a baseball cap. If you you know you might wear that if you. Maybe you're balding and you want to cover up, you know, what you've got going on. I used to wear baseball caps before I just dove in and shaved my head. Uh, if you were going to a baseball game or playing baseball and wanted to keep the sun out of your eyes for some reason, maybe you just thought this was a stylish thing to wear, that's, that's why you would wear it. But there's nothing special about this. You guys all kind of look bored and curious where I'm going with this. Uh, what about this next hat? Would you wear this if you were just looking to cover up a bald spot and... You know, you just needed to something to throw on your head. Would you wear this if you were just looking to keep the sun out of your eyes and playing baseball? Is that all that this hat means? No, of course not, right? Even though this hat is, it's really not all that different from the other hat. The color's a little bit different, to be sure. There's a few letters on it. But what's different about this? The saying, right? If you want to wear this hat, it's more than just wearing a hat. There's a message. There's a culture that goes along with it. right? If you're wearing this hat and someone sees you wearing this hat, they can automatically assume pretty well that you support a certain political candidate, you align with a certain political ideology, and whether or not we agree with that ideology or not, I think we can all agree that just seeing this hat brings up emotions and thoughts in ourselves that the picture of the other hat didn't. The two things are very, very similar to each other. On their surface, they are the same. But this one comes with a whole lot more behind it, right? By wearing this, you align with a certain group of people over and against another group of people. And if you think about it, we all have different groups, different ideologies that we align with, right? Maybe, maybe you're a Republican and you would wear this hat to say, I am a Republican and I'm proud of that. Maybe, to use perhaps a less controversial example, if you are a Michigan fan, you will also do certain things that otherwise wouldn't have meaning to align yourself or to show that you are a Michigan fan. If you're a Michigan fan on a Saturday in the fall, you may find yourself several miles south of here at the Big House in Ann Arbor. During a, during a break or during halftime, you may find yourself singing Hail to the Victors, right? Hail to the Victors, valiant hand. When we sing a song like Hail to the Victors, if we're, if we're being honest, just, you know, you strip football and identity of the University of Michigan and what it means as a football team away, it's really just kind of a dumb song, Right? It's a little ditty that someone came up with a few hundred years ago. But what it means now is so much more than just a song, right? And when you go on a Saturday afternoon to the big house to watch Michigan play, and you sing that song, it means more than just a simple song. It's a bit of culture. It's something that marks you out as a specific group of people. When you sing that song or you wear some Michigan gear, you wear a Chelsea scarf to the service on a Sunday morning because Chelsea's playing. You are identifying yourself with a certain group of people. You sing Hail to the Victors. 
You're a Michigan fan. You wear a Make America Great Again hat. You probably voted for Trump and you support him. We all have these things that mark us out as aligning with a specific group. We do things that mark us out as Americans. We do things that mark us out, in my case, as Canadian. We do things that mark us out as people of German heritage or people of Scottish heritage. We do things, we have our own traditions and our own families. And by doing these traditions, by displaying these things to the world, we're saying, I belong to this specific group of people. Our passage this morning deals with some of these traditions. It talks about circumcision and uncircumcision. What is that? Right? What does it mean to be one of the uncircumcised or one of the circumcised. To really get into what it means and to learn what's ta- what Paul's talking about here, we have to go back a little bit. We have to look back at the Old Testament and review, really, a couple thousand years of history. Back in the Old Testament, God revealed himself in a series of covenants. And if you don't know what that means, think of it this way. God came down to this earth. He reached out to us in a series of little ways throughout the Old Testament. The illustration that I like to use, I like to picture it, is after, after the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve fell into sin and rebelled, there's almost like a giant black sheet held up between God and humanity. And in the Old Testament, God starts poking holes in that sheet. At first, at the very beginning, there's just a little thin hole in it, right? There's just a brief promise that God makes to Adam and Eve that there's going to be some descendant sometime who's going to step on the head of the serpent and who's going to undo everything that Adam and Eve did. As we go through the Old Testament, we start to see that curtain kind of ripped in two. A little more and more light keeps coming through. The big moment in that story where a hole is ripped is the story of Abraham. And that's what, that's what Paul is looking back to here. God came down to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I am going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And because, all of your, because of your descendants, the world is going to be blessed. This world that was full of sin, that was full of suffering because of the curse placed on it because of Adam and Eve. This world would somehow be blessed again because of God's relationship with Abraham. It was a covenant. God revealed himself. As we go on a few different or a few chapters later in the book of uh, or in the Old Testament, we go from Genesis to Exodus, we see how God calls his people out of Egypt and he makes a covenant with them, a relationship with them once again on Mount Sinai. And in this covenant, God, he provides a way to come to him, right? There's a sacrificial system. The presence of God comes down in the tabernacle, and God shows us how we can come to him. But back in the Old Testament, if you wanted to come to God, you had to do it a certain way. You had to come and you had to bring a sacrifice. If you wanted access to God, you couldn't just pray to him as we do now. It had to go through a priest. You had to bring a sacrifice to atone for your sin. And the only people that could go into the presence of God, the true presence of God at the center of the temple, were the priests, specifically the high priest. You could only do that once a year. God's presence was mediated 
right? You had to go through something. It was mediated by the sacrifices. And these sacrifices served as traditions that set apart God's people from other people, right? The Jewish people were the ones who had the sacrifices, The Jewish people, I think I skipped over this part when talking about Abraham, they were the ones who were circumcised, right? As part of God's covenant with Abraham, in order to have a relationship with with God through the family of Abraham, the mark of that in the young boys that were born was circumcision. And it was these things in the Old Testament, circumcision, sacrifices, these markers, these traditions that that aligned the people of God that separated them out from other people, right? The people of God were the ones who had circumcision. The people on the outside of the circumcision, they they weren't part of the people of God. The people of God had sacrifices in order to get to God. The people who were on the outside of this people of God, they, they didn't have access to the sacrifices. If they wanted, in the Old Testament, if a Gentile, someone who was not Jewish, if they wanted access to God, they had to come in and really become Jewish. They had to go through the Jewish sacrificial system. They had to convert to Judaism. And so when Paul talks about this, when he talks about the difference between the circumcised and the uncircumcised, he's talking about, he's talking about this division, this distinction between who were the people of God were and who were not the people of God. God's presence came down, right, and he reached out to the Jewish people. Right, like a pinprick that kept getting a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger throughout the Old Testament. God didn't reach out to all of the people. Some people were on the outside. Some people were excluded. They were, they were kept away from the circumcision. They were kept away from the sacrifices. They didn't have access to God like the Jewish people did. And that's what Paul talks about here. God revealed himself in covenant. These covenants contained access to God. If you wanted access to God, you had to come through the sacrificial system. These covenants contained the promise of blessing. God came to Abraham and said, through your descendants, the entire world is going to be blessed. The hope of the Messiah, right? When we hear the word Jesus Christ in this passage, the word Christ means the same thing as a Messiah. And in the Old Testament, the Jewish people looked forward to a coming king, the one who would come to finally undo everything Adam did. And the people of God, the ones, to, the ones who were marked out by circumcision and the sacrifices, they were the ones who had the hope of the Messiah. The ones who were on the outside did not. And the covenants contained the requirements and identity markers of circumcision and sacrifice. So throughout the Old Testament, as God deals with the nation of Israel, as he deals with his people, as he has increased relationship with them throughout the entire Old Testament, as he... You know, as they have kings that are supposed to bring them to God and prophets that are supposed to bring them to God, the Gentiles, even though there are some Gentiles in the Old Testament, the ones who aren't Jewish, there are some who come in to the people of God, but the majority of them are on the outside. The way it was supposed to work in the Old Testament is that God's people were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. But in practice, that's not really what happened. These covenant markers, these these symbols, circumcision and sacrifice, that were supposed to mark out the people of God, they became divisive cultural markers. Right? We read in this passage, those who call themselves the circumcision 
and those who are called the uncircumcision. These were names, labels that were put on people. Divisive labels. The circumcised are different than the uncircumcised. And there's a wall, there's a barrier that comes down between them. Over time, the Jewish people began to see the Gentiles with skepticism, and frankly, with good reason. Throughout the Old Testament, the Gentiles treated the Jewish people horribly. But by the time we get to the time of Jesus, being called a Gentile was the same as being called a dog. Right? Gentile, dog, take your pick, same insult. There were some rabbis who taught, not all of them, uh, but there were some rabbis who taught, and Jesus was a notable exception to this, some rabbis taught that the, the, um, the command to love your neighbor in the book of Leviticus didn't apply to Gentiles. Right? You had to love your neighbor who was a Jew, but you didn't have to love your neighbor who was a Gentile. They were on the outside. There was a famous prayer um, by another rabbi where he stands up every morning and he says, I thank God that I am not a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. There's a cultural animosity that began to be built up around these divisive markers. Now, I want to just kind of pump the brakes a little bit and and have a note of acknowledgement a little bit. I know that in the past, in human history, in recent history, these, the behavior of the Jewish people throughout the New Testament times has been used to commit atrocities, or uses justification to commit terrible atrocities against the Jewish people. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that's justified. I'm not saying that's okay. What I am saying is that over time, what was supposed to be a light to the world, God's covenants, God's relationships with his people, over time, they were used to separate God's people from the rest of the world. They became divisive. They became barriers. Paul here talks about the wall of hostility that was up between God's people and the people who are on the outside of God's people. There was Gentile estrangement from the covenant. The Gentiles, the people who are not Jewish, found themselves on the outside. And by Paul's time, there there were ethnic tensions that started to arise. Hostility. But, as Paul says here, our situation has changed. If you remember last week, We looked at how we as individuals have changed from being dead in our sins to being made alive and blessed in Christ. But here in this passage, Paul is once again talking about, you know, the former things and the things that are now the case, the way things used to be and the way things things are now. But here he's not talking about individuals. He's talking about groups of people, the Gentiles who were once far off, who were once on the other side of a wall of hostility, now are brought near by the blood of Christ. There's a man, uh, he was a soccer player. Heider, this illustration is for you. I picked it because of you. Uh, His name was Didier Drogba. Uh, He was a striker for Chelsea Football Club. And this, this soccer player named Didier Drogba, he played for them back in the middle of the previous decade. He was also a star for his national soccer team, the Ivory Coast. The Ivory Coast is it's West Africa. It's kind of near Ghana. Um, you know, if you went south from Spain, several hundred miles, you'd find it there. It's in West Sub-Saharan Africa, and at that time, it was a country that was marred by civil war. All of these different warring factions had torn this country apart. 
But the one thing that really united the country was its soccer team. That because of this, that because of this really good soccer player, Didier Drogba, they were, they were suddenly good again. They were suddenly on the world stage. And they were on the very brink of qualifying for the World Cup. They finally did qualify for the World Cup. They, they beat Sudan. And after that game, the cameras go into the locker room. And one of the most famous moments in all of soccer history that spills over into politics, this, this player, Didier Drogba, falls on his knees in the locker room, looks at the cameras, and he pleads to his countrymen. He says, my fellow Avorians, from the north and from the south, from the center and from the west, we have proved to you today that the Ivory Coast can cohabit and can play together for the same objective, to qualify for the World Cup. We ask you now, the only country in Africa that is all these riches cannot sink into a war, please lay down your arms, organize elections, and everything will turn out for the best. He literally falls down to his knees after a game that they had won and pleads for unity. And sure enough, a couple years later, the country was at peace. Now, we probably can't blame or can't account or attribute you know, all of the peace to this, to this soccer player who begged for it. There were other factors at work. But what he did with a soccer team on the field and off the team, off the field, was allow that country, instead of, instead of all of these warring tensions, right? instead of all of these ethnic divisions, he allowed them to unite around another thing. Instead of being divided by what had divided them before, they were united around this newly found successful soccer team that went on to the World Cup, that did pretty well, they did okay. But they were united around something. No longer were they divided by something, but they united around something. That's what Christ has done for us. All of us are Gentiles, as far as I know. There might be some people here with a little bit of Jewish background. If you, if you are, I'd be interested in knowing that. But the majority of us, at least, are Gentiles. The majority of us, if Christ had not come and made peace, we would still be stuck on the outside. We would still be on the outside of the people of God. We still would not have access. But God has come down in order to break down the wall of hostility that existed between us and between the people of God. In the new covenant, Christ provides a direct way to God. No longer, because of Christ, no longer do we have to come through a system of sacrifices, right? None of us have brought, um, none of us have brought a bull or a pigeon or a goat to the temple in order to be sacrificed. None of us have gone through a priest in order to get to God. We can just come to God as we are. That's because Christ has offered a sacrifice that has given us access to God. As the author of Hebrews puts it, in Hebrews chapter 9, he writes, But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, as they did in the Old Testament. But he entered the most holy place, this presence of God, once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. 
the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, sanctify them or makes them holy so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will he cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Because of Christ, we now have direct access to God. He is the sacrifice made once for all. In the Old Testament, in the, in the old sacrificial system, they had to keep offering sacrifices. The high priest kept having to go into the Holy of Holies year after year on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat to atone for or to cover the sins of the people of God. But Christ has given us an eternal redemption. We don't have to keep going back. We don't have to keep sacrificing anything over and over again. We have access to God because of Christ, not because of the previous covenants. Right? It's not by it's not by the um, it's not by sacrifice. It's not by becoming circumcised. It's not any of those Jewish identity things. We have access to God because of Christ. Covenants are no longer contained by Jewish identity, which means that we don't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. And that was a big debate back in New Testament times, when the gospel was first starting to spread. There was this huge debate that they had. The book of Galatians is written about this, and we read about one of the first councils that the church had in Acts chapter 15. The question was, as the gospel is going out to the Gentiles, right? it's going out to the, the house of Cornelius, it's going out to the Ethiopian eunuch, as it's spreading throughout Acts, the question was, do these people have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian? And they debated this. This was, a, this was the controversy in the very early church. And the apostles got together, and the early church leaders got together, and they prayed about it, and they decided that, no, you don't have to become Jewish in order to get to God. Right? If you were in part of the uncircumcised, and you wanted to come to God, you didn't have to become circumcised. All you had to do was come and believe Because the presence of God, now that Christ has come, it's not mediated, it's not distributed through the Old Testament covenants. You don't have to become Jewish in order to get to God. You don't have to offer sacrifices in order to get to God. Christ has fulfilled all of those things in himself. So all we have to do is go through Christ to get to God. It's in this way that Christ has made peace. He's made peace with us and God. He's forgiven our sins that kept us between God or kept us from going to God. Through Christ, we have forgiveness of sins. Through Christ, we have redemption. Through Christ, we have eternal life. Because of Christ and because of Christ's work, now we and God are good. We can have a right relationship. And because of this, Christ has also made peace with these warring ethnic factions, right? the ones who were the circumcised and the ones who were the uncircumcised, this division that existed. 
This suspicion that existed no longer has to exist because the debate is no longer, you know, do we need to become circumcised or do we need to start offering sacrifices? Do we need to do all of these things that marked out Jewish identity? Because we all just have to come to Christ, Jewish or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised. We find unity in the cross. So that's why Paul uses some weird language here, right? He talks about how Christ has made peace in the cross. The cross is an instrument of execution. It's like talking about how the electric chair has brought down all of our hostility. It doesn't make any sense, right? But when we realize that Christ has been the sacrifice for us on our behalf, Christ has made the atonement so that we can have access to God, we see how, in reality, these walls of hostility are broken down so that we can have access to God, and so that we can become one body of believers. No longer are there Jew and Gentile. God has made a new people. Verse number 15 of Ephesians chapter 2. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Right? There were two humanities, Jews and Gentiles. But it was God's purpose through Christ to make one new humanity, thus making peace. And in one body, right, this idea of one humanity, the body of Christ in one body to reconcile both of these groups of people, both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. We have this language throughout the book of Ephesians about the body of Christ, right? And if you've been with us for the past several weeks, you've heard me you know, preach a number of times about how this body of Christ is underneath the head of the head that is Christ, because at the end of all things, everything will be gathered underneath the headship of Christ. Every knee will bow down and worship Christ. And the church, the body of Christ, is what that looks like in the here and now. But through the death of Christ, he begins to form this one humanity. No longer are we Jews and Gentiles. We are one, a new humanity a new body of believers. We are the church. Paul uses a few illustrations. He he didn't take his English class very seriously in high school, apparently, because he mixes a lot of metaphors. I've been told that's bad writing, but that's, that's what Paul does here. He uses the illustration of a temple, right? A house of worship that's constructed, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, built on the foundation of the new and the old. We're not jettisoning jettisoning the Jewish religion. We're not saying it's completely worthless. This new temple is built on the prophets. It's built on the Old Testament. But it's still a new testament, a new temple, built on both the apostles and the prophets. It's a household. right? We've talked about the language of adoption throughout the language of Ephesians. And for those who have been called, for those who are in Christ, for those who are Christians, we are adopted into the family of God. We're not a part of the family of the world anymore. We're not children of the devil anymore. We've been adopted into one new family. We are fellow citizens. Right? That word citizenship means, means a lot to me. For those of you who don't know, I am a dual citizen. Right? I have American citizenship uh, because my mother is an American. And I have Canadian citizenship because my dad is a Canadian and I was actually born in Canada. Right? So I have legal rights of being an American citizen. 
and I have the legal rights of being a Canadian citizen. Right? I hold both of those together. But the reality is that in Christ, I have a citizenship that is much greater than either one of those citizenships. I am part of a new humanity now. I am fellow citizens with the people of God. I have a citizenship that is in heaven. And so when we enter this church, we're not Jewish or Gentile anymore. We're not American or Canadian or German or whatever our heritage is. When we enter this sanctuary, we are the people of God. We are the people of a new citizenship. This church is really an embassy in foreign territory. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, operating under the rules of the kingdom of heaven, in the middle of a land and a country that may or may not recognize our citizenship. We are a new people. So God's people now is not, it's not the nation of Israel. It's us. It's the church. We are God's people. We are who God works through in the world. God's presence, God's work in the world, comes through us. We have our own rituals as a people of God. Right? If you're a Republican, you may wear a Make America Great Again hat. If you are a Michigan fan, you may go to a stadium on a Saturday afternoon and sing Hail to the Victors. If you are a Christian, you will also do things that set us apart as Christians. Right? Circumcision and the sacrifices, those identity markers in the Old Testament that showed who God's people were, we don't, we don't necessarily do those things anymore. Instead, we have baptism, and we have the Lord's Supper. Last week, if you were with us, we, we enjoyed the table of the Lord. We enjoyed the Lord's Supper. And that's not a Presbyterian thing. That's not you know a Peace Presbyterian church, a local congregation thing. That's an ecumenical thing. That's something that churches around the world do. It's a people of God thing, right? Last week when we come to this table and we, we partake of the bread and we drink of the cup, we're participating in this new humanity. We are partaking of the body of Christ. It marks us out as people of God. And in a few moments, we're going to have a baptism. This baptism marks a child out as a member of the people of God. He is joining this church. He's coming to be one of the people of God. He is now one of us. He's not on the outside. He's a child of the covenant. So this new people of God, this new humanity, we have our own rituals. We're marked out by baptism in the Lord's Supper. And as we close, I just I have a couple thoughts to leave with you. If you only take a couple things from this, I want you to take these things. We as believers, if you are in Christ, if you are saved, if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, you have more in common with a Nigerian Christian or an Indian Christian, someone who worships God on the other side of the world, you have more in common with them than you do your unsaved neighbor. You may vote the same way as your unsaved neighbor. You may have similar culture to your unsaved neighbor next door. You may have similar, um, you know, you had a similar career. You have a similar way or means of living. 
than your unsaved neighbor. But in Christ, we have a much deeper unity than that with other Christians. We're fellow citizens of the people of God. We are part of the new humanity. And so you have more in common with someone on the other side of the world who also confesses Jesus Christ as Lord than you do someone who doesn't know Christ. But above all, if you get one thing from this, if you only take away one little aspect of this sermon, know this. Christ has provided a way to God for you. No longer do we need to offer sacrifices in order to have our sins forgiven or to come to God. No longer do we need to do that. Christ has paid our punishment for us. We don't have to bring anything in order to be right with God. We don't have to give any amount of money to the church. All we need to do is lean back, repent of our sin, and trust that the work of Christ is enough to bring us to God. If you repent and believe, you will be saved. This is a promise that is given to all of the people of God. With that in mind, let's close in prayer.